0: Hello and welcome to episode 118 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, what's going on? Uh, not a whole lot. I
1: have uh, invested in Bitcoin, which makes it sort of... I Actually, I shouldn't use that word. I shouldn't say invested. I've uh, put in some bets on um, Bitcoin, and that's made my life uh, interesting because I oscillate between like... What's going on in Bitcoin, too? Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'll just wait and see what happens because either it's going to crash and I'll lose everything that I've put in or, hey, it might double and then I'll be mildly excited about that. So
0: I don't think the word is invest. I think the word is speculate.
1: Yeah, speculate, bet, whatever. Yeah.
0: Doing. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, are you like are you normally like an investor, like stock market kind of a guy, or real estate no. kind of a guy, or what? No, not, not at
1: all. It's too boring because you know five percent a year. It just I don't know makes me cry. Rather focus on um, the L set. I know I that's see. not
0: wise, but uh, I just have never really been interested in it. So you mean you? Well, surely you're saving money for retirement or whatever.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I save the money that I don't spend, but I I haven't done a good job of investing it.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. That doesn't. That's a non Ben Olson kind of a thing to be saying right now. That's, <laughs> that, that's out of character.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, uh. Well, uh, to to bring some, it's ironic that we're talking about this because I'm actually going to talk with someone tomorrow who uh sort of provides advice as to how to allocate you know your finances and stuff uh based on the long haul part of me um it wants to do that responsibly, et cetera, but another part of me says like m- my situation I feel like our situation is just different than most people's, so I think a lot of people get a fixed paycheck and then they you know, they save some of that and so forth. Whereas, I don't know, I just, um, I feel like there's a decent amount of volatility and just focusing on growing the business has done more than
0: worrying about investing. I see. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I used to be in that business when I was right out of college. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um,
1: I think I kind of remember you mentioning that once, but I had definitely forgotten. So, yeah, yeah, you were going around telling people what to do and stuff.
0: Yeah, sort of. Yeah, counseling people with what to do with their retirement money, how much to save, how much they're going to need for retirement, all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, I'm not like a retirement guy because I love what I do and I don't really plan to retire ever. But, you know, putting money aside is something that I've always been good at. So, I, I, um, just because I kind of grew up with it, I guess. But... Uh, anyway, if you want a second opinion on anything that your uh, finance guys are telling you, I'd be happy to chime in. That's one I—I I never worry about it. I spend no time thinking about it, but I've just kind of slowly put a little bit of money away over the years. And, yeah,
1: so you put it into the stock market or something like a general index fund or something like that.
0: Um, I actually just buy individual stocks because I. I have a pretty good handle on, what, like, I'm like a Warren Buffett style investor, you know, just got basically buy and hold forever mm, mm-hmm. kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. So I just buy, I buy like businesses that I feel like I understand and things that I like, you
2: mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm.
0: simple, simple stuff, Disney, Costco, you know, um, some tech things, but it's always things that I feel like things that I feel like I, I know what they are. Um, Amazon and Apple and stuff like that. So mm. Um, but I never like, you know, check my statements and I don't care about the volatility and I don't like look at it really. I just, I just suck it away. You know, the individual 401k is a really good move for somebody like you. Cause you get to deduct that from your taxes at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get some tax free growth there, some <laughs> sheltering, but anyhow, I'm sure the audience is riveted by our talk of fi- personal finance. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, you should email me if you have any questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, don't email me either because I actually hated that business. It was it was rough, so I'm much happier teaching. Um, all right, so we have a uh, bunch of we have some news. We have a bunch of listener mail. We have uh, we, as promised, we are going to talk about reading the question stem first on the logical reasoning. And why we think that is a bad strategy. Um, There's a lot we can dig into on that. Uh, I wanted to make one announcement quick at the top of the show, which is on January 10th, I'm doing a special one day class. Uh, It's a three hour class where I'm going to be reviewing prep test 83, which is the December 2017 official LSAT that just came out that many of you have done. Um, whether or not you are, whether or not you did take that test, I think the class will be useful. Uh, basically, I'm going to set up in front of the whiteboard. I'm going to do all four of the logic games, and I'm going to answer whichever logical reasoning and reading comprehension questions the bulk of the class struggled with. So that's online. It's three hours. You can register via my website, and uh, oh, it's limited to thirty people. So there's a handful signed up now and that's going to be capped at 30. So that's on January 10th and it's a review of, uh, the December, 2017 LSAT prep test 83. So hope you hope you will sign up. Um, all right. Any announcements, Ben, you want to make? Uh, no, that's, uh, that's exciting. I hope it goes well. Yeah, thanks. It should be good. I mean, if you're available, obviously you're welcome to, uh, Sit in and check it out. I'm excited about the, the Zoom platform. I think it's really cool for online teaching. Yeah, so and it gives gives me the like you know the Brady Bunch view kind of thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where it shows all of the people in the in the room. Yeah, um, so that's pretty cool. Although <laughs> that post mortem thing that I did, mm-hmm. uh, one funny thing that happened at the post mortem was that some dude had his cat in his lap, mm. but his cat also had one of those um, cone things on. So I got like this cat With a cone on it Like staring me in the face I I basically had to like Shut that guy's camera off So that it wouldn't keep distracting (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to laugh Every time I looked at it Yeah that's pretty funny Anyhow um, We got some news huh From the Oh wait First donation You want to talk about that?
1: Oh uh, Yeah Zach Donated $17.15 So thank you Zach Um, I'm trying to remember. I feel like Zach must have gotten a 175. Is that what that was about? Oh,
0: one dollar per or one ten cents per point. Mm,
1: Maybe. Yeah, I think so. I'm sorry, Zach. I can't remember your email now. I know you emailed us, Uh, but thank you. All we care about is the money,
0: Zach. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Nah, thanks, thanks, Zach. That's awesome. Um, let's see. News from LSAC. We have an email here. You want to read it? Sure. Uh,
1: hello from Newton. Dude, that's interesting. That's kind of a a clever intro from Elsac. I would expect something much more serious. Um, they're in Newton, Pennsylvania, if anyone's curious. Uh, I'm writing to let you know that For real? This sounds so natural. I'm writing to let you know that on Sunday, December 10th, 2017, from 6 a.m. until 10 a.m. Eastern time, the LSAC.org website will be unavailable due to scheduled maintenance. Okay. Uh, Emails and phones will – email and phones will not be affected.
0: Yeah, that's that's in the past, but it wasn't when this came out. But anyway, that's not the important part.
1: Well – I think this is (laughs) interesting though because this does not sound like this came from the normal emailer at LSAC. This sounds like just some guy writing um, in the tech department. Some important changes of interest to you will be implemented on Sunday. LSAC is eliminating the LSAT late registration period along with the LSAT late registration fee. Beginning with the February 2018 administration of the LSAT, there will be only one LSAT deadline and one LSAT registration fee for each administration. Yeah, the pressures from GRE continue and LSAT continues to try to make this a more uh, friendly experience.
0: Yeah, at the very least streamlining that and just making it one fee. I mean, I, I immediately cynically was like, "Oh, so they're just going to raise the rate <laughs> and just make this charge everybody the late registration fee essentially." Yeah, they could. Um, mm-hmm. But they haven't done that yet, at least as far as I know. So, yeah, the the it was a funky deal with the late registration period anyway because it was only like a week.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it wasn't like there was a month where they were charging a different price. It was it was literally one week. Where they were mm-hmm. charging a different price, mm-hmm. so now they've just decided to get rid of all that, and there's just going to be one deadline and one fee.
1: Uh, the next note is registration for the June 2000. Oh, sorry, June 11, 2018 LSAT will open. Registration will open in May of 2018 for the remaining 2018-2019 LSAT administrations, which are on September 8th, November 17th, January 6th. March 30th, and June 3rd. January 26th, Ben. What did I say? January 6th. <laughs> That'd be fun. Welcome back from your uh, holiday break. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so those are new dates. Jan- I mean, January is not much different than the current February tests, but March, that comes out of nowhere. Uh, we've yep. never seen that
0: before. So cool. That's the new date. Yeah, because there's actually going to be six of them in 2019. Mm-hmm. So, those are those are new dates, um, and of course the December one. There's no December test. It's November 17th now. Instead, yep. so that all moved. That all has moved up in 2018, and uh, we yeah we start to see those new test dates in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, so registration should be open now for the June 2018 test, I believe. Yeah, and uh, then in May we're going to get all those remaining ones all those dates will open um not really any advantage to registering for an lsat that's so far out there in the future um i normally don't tell people to register for the june would you have people registering for the june test right now is there really any advantage to that
1: no i mean in dc it's nice if you can go to American University because they are pretty organized. They start the test quickly, and they, see. they have big desks. So if you know you're going to take it and you can, and AU is available, then I would sign up
0: for it. But otherwise, man, it doesn't matter. It's so far away. I see. Okay. So anyway, a little bit of news from the LSAC. No, uh, no more late registration period, no more late registration fee And registration is open now for uh, not only the February test, but for the June test. And, yeah, just a PSA to give out all of those dates. The February test, do you know that off the top of your head, Ben? For this coming February? Yeah, February 10th. Mm -hmm. So, February 10th, you should put that on your calendar, listeners, if you're thinking about the LSAT. You should actually be registering for that if you're thinking about... Uh, taking it that soon. February 10th, that should already be locked in. And then it's uh, June 11th, September 8th, November 17th. Those should all be on your calendar if you are studying for the LSAT right now.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Like literally, right? Don't you think everybody should actually have those blocked out on their calendar just so that you can have backup dates, backup plans, backup plan to your backup plan? Yeah. Plan for the worst, hope for the best. Maybe you'll be done sooner, but... Yeah, but many people end up taking it multiple times. Uh, By the way, I talked this week to a a student of mine who um, I found out is at Harvard, and I was looking through my email history with him, and he also took the LSAT three times and got his highest score on his third attempt. Mm -hmm. And he's at Harvard Law. So there's just no stigma against taking it multiple times, Mm. uh, if necessary. Um, cool. This next one is, uh, an email from a listener called Leslie and it made me amused because she (laughs) heard our PSA about asking for fee waivers, Mm -hmm. which was on a very recent episode. Mm -hmm. And she said, good advice. It really is this easy. I topped. I typed this at a stoplight. Now let's see if I get in. And so what had happened was she responded to one of those good luck on the LSAT emails. Mm-hmm. And she responded with, hi, I'm planning to apply early decision and wondering if you would be able to send me a fee waiver, Leslie. <laughs> she actually used the name of the person and the name of the school, but I redacted that just to not, you know. I don't know why. Um and it took less than an hour. And she got so she typed that at a stoplight, and less than an hour later she got back, Hi Leslie, thank you for your interest in our school. The application fee will be automatically waived for your application. A fee waiver code will not be needed. If you experience any difficulties with the application fee waiver, please contact me sincerely. And then whatever that person was.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Although I would not suggest Typing at a stoplight? um, Yeah, get out their phones and start stopping, typing at a stoplight. Um, Yeah, I have certainly done that myself, but it's not the safest thing, even at a stoplight.
0: Yeah, it's not, it's not. But everybody's doing it. Hey, speaking of that, we've uh, predicted because we do a lot of prognostication on the show. We've predicted. We've talked a lot about auto driving cars, self driving cars. Yeah. That shit is on, man. That's happening. That's that is happening. Um, there are. I read the other day there are currently self driving cars in. It was either Boston or Chicago mm-hmm. that are. Um, it's Uber, mm-hmm. and they are actually picking up riders. There is an Uber representative in the car. Mm -hmm. but the car is driving itself. And so the Uber rep is like trying to, you know, explain to the passengers what's going on yeah they gotta ease them in otherwise people yeah. will freak out what just happened <laughs> yeah because it was not like if it came to pick up me or if it, i assume if it came to pick up you too i would just jump right in i i'm i'm i am more comfortable with no driver than with normal uber drivers oh
1: for sure every day so. <laughs> those cars get smarter and safer uh uber drivers get you know more cranky and uh less safe
0: just they're just terrible drivers. They're I a, human. I was That's in, the problem. Yeah, exactly. And people are just really shitty drivers. Yeah. I was in a. I was in an Uber the other day. I had to go somewhere and didn't want to drive. And the this driver was like constantly on either the gas or the brake. Like there was no in between. You know what I mean? And yeah. this is even on the freeway. It was like just gunning it on the gas and then hitting the brake and then gunning it again yeah. and then hitting the brake again. <laughs> and it was the 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 irony of that was that we weren't even getting anywhere quickly. It was like. It was doing it inefficiently. It was like doing it at low speeds, mm. but still gunning it and breaking it and gunning it and breaking it. I was like, God damn it. I just can't wait until the internet drives this car. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that is happening and it is happening uh, quickly and not soon enough for my taste. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. Mm-hmm. Like I have to go north this weekend um, to go play golf and I it's like five and a half hours for me to get to uh, Pacific Grove where I'm going. Yeah, and boy, I wish I could just like get in the car at midnight and go to sleep, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and just wake up at six a.m. at the golf oh, course. Oh yeah. would be so many amazing. things
1: would be so much more accessible because how
0: far you have to drive is taken into account when. You Dude, have it's going to be drive. amazing. It's going to it's going to be like, hey, do you want to go check out the Grand Canyon? Yeah. Okay, cool. And then you just go get in get in the car and go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah, I I I can't wait. So anyway, we were making predictions. I I know I was making wild predictions that it was going to happen like within 2 years or something like that, but I am I'm expecting to get into a driverless car in 2018.
1: Oh, I think so. Cuz the thing about change is that it's happening faster and faster, right? So right. if you look at past models, you have to realize you're on a on a exponentially <laughs> increasing curve and so You say, hey, we adopted the iPhone this quickly. It's like, well, now things are adopted even faster.
0: Yeah, the first iPhone was only, like, what, 10 years ago or something like that? Mm -hmm. Uh, 2007, (laughs) yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's amazing. It was only 10 years ago and already we're at, like, everyone on the planet has one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we've gone through – I've had eight of them, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, just unbelievable. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Um.
1: I I should tell you right now, since I'm never going to do it, um, in the back of my mind, I have this vision for a novel in which someone of the present day is sent to the future, where no one knows how to drive, but the cars have been shut down, and then all of a sudden this archaic skill becomes valuable in a post-apocalyptic world. So that's my vision for a novel. As you can see, it has all the all the necessary components of a very, very successful novel that will <laughs> take the world by storm. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, that's don't very steal a my concept. idea, please. I I don't oh, know why yeah. I
0: just gave it out,
1: but anyways, oh well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, at least anyone out there who steals it, that you need to give credit to Ben Olson. Yeah, for his visionary, <laughs> visionary idea. <laughs>
1: What are we going to do? We can't drive these old cars. I can drive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was stupid.
0: It doesn't even need to be um, – it, so it could actually be near future because, like, no kids are going to learn how to drive now. Yeah. And so it could be you, Ben. You could be the hero of the novel. All you have to do is just live to be, like, 100 years old. yeah. And then the weird apocalypse happens, and you're the oldest person on the planet. You're also the only one who remembers how to drive.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I like I like where this is going.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe we should co-author
1: it. <laughs> An old man superhero. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, we should. Awesome. Co-author it. Yeah, dude. Speaking of superheroes, um, The Incredibles is coming out. Uh, this year, Incredibles two. Okay, I don't know if you're into that, but I am. I'm, I can't wait to see. That yeah, was a 2. funny movie. I remember. I haven't seen it. a long I time. love that one. That's like my favorite Pixar movie. I think so. Incredibles two is coming out in 2018. But even better than that, uh, guess who's going to Star Wars tomorrow, Ben? Uh, you are. Yes, I am <laughs> because I live in LA and movies come out a day early. So, um, yeah. What? Yep, I got didn't our tickets. Know that. They come well, out a day early. Seems like it. Yeah, there's like. It seems uh, yeah, like they're. It. That's a little yeah. Shady. Well, I don't know that it's like a, an official thing, but I, from what I've seen, every movie, every big movie, you know, you know how they do like midnight shows where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, the first possible thing. Yeah. Well, in LA, that's like the entire day before. Hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah, they're like the theater near me is playing nothing but Star Wars um, tomorrow. So cool. I've got my 7 p.m. tickets lined up. Sweet, dude. Have fun! Yeah, I can't wait. I know you're going you're gonna to take the boys.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. I think we already have yeah.
0: it on the schedule sometime
1: closer to Christmas. But yeah. Oh yeah, next week, next Friday. So
0: next Friday. Next Friday. Oh, that means I won't be able to talk to you about it. Next I'm week. sorry. Okay, don't worry. I, I'm I always a party pooper. I like to throw wet no, blankets no.
1: on things. You know.
0: No, no. I just don't want to. I just don't want to spoil it for you. So I'll, I'll have to hold off. <laughs> okay. So, Thanks. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Um... Maybe we can provide some actual content here. Oh yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, oh, another update from uh, the December test. Okay. Mm-hmm. The the December second test. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to read this one? Yeah. This is an email from Allie. Why is it all in italics? Oh, I don't know. I just did that. I did it. You like I was the whole thing? To call out? No, I was just calling out that it was a a and a correspondent. I thought that put it into like correspondent voice when I did that. Oh, okay. But I don't normally do that, so then it just confused you. So anyways, my bad. It's okay.
1: I'll get over it eventually. Here's okay. something that made me laugh in the days preceding the December LSAT. Uh, Western New England School of Law emailed December test takers, "Good luck on the LSAT tomorrow." On November
0: 29th. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Uh, the, the LSAT, of course, was December second, and so they sent that out. Uh, yeah, a day early. Yeah, or two days early. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> good luck on Thursday.
1: Then four hours later, resent the same email with hashtag I meant Saturday. hashtag Sorry to freak you out. hashtag Not enough coffee. Added to the above <laughs> body copy. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the recovery is worse than the. <laughs> yeah 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 the day of the test went really well for me i look at it i took it at university of pittsburgh and my proctors who were sisters <laughs> and mentioned that they had been doing this for 27 years were perfect
0: wow sisters can come together and proctor every three months I'm I'm picturing like the Andrews sisters or who or whatever, you know, those uh those girls that sang like Christmas music and stuff. I was wondering I'm wondering if these proctors were like singing any two-part harmony while they were doing the proctoring. Yeah, how uh,
1: I don't know who the Andrews sisters are, but um I'll try to imagine people gleefully singing. Um I had the LG section third, the game section third, right before the break and felt super confident. Over the break, I actually thought to myself, I don't even care if I have to take this again. This is fun. I opened section four to find another logic game section, which from forms, I had found out was the real section. And I crushed that one too. I couldn't have asked for a more perfect testing day. Hey, that's great. Yeah. It didn't hurt that over the break, a girl I was chatting with said, I hope the writing section is next. Eh? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's not going to happen. Me. Mm, Me. Have you ever taken a practice test? Her. No. Me. Oh. Okay. Confidence boosted. (laughs) Yeah, you will encounter those people at the test. Again, thank you for answering my question. I am a loyal LSAT Thinking podcast listener. Feel free to use any of this email and my name on the pod. And I am using your LR Encyclopedia. That's Nathan's Logical Reasoning book on Amazon, by the way. In self-studying, it has been immensely helpful. Cheers,
0: Ali. Cool. Yeah, thanks, Ali. I always like the uh, schadenfreude. (laughs) <laughs> when people, when people get their confidence boosted by talking to the other people who are still prepared <laughs> at the test, <laughs> it makes me happy. Um, of course the writing section is section six of the test. Uh, the way the test happens is three 35 minute sections, then a break, then two 35 minute sections. Then they collect all the materials and then the writing sample, uh, comes out and that's the very last thing you do is the writing sample yeah i mean to be Um, fair you can always hope that
1: it's next
0: (laughs) there's nothing wrong with hoping (laughs) uh, yeah and lsac could uh, always just throw a curveball and change the order of the of the sections without without declaring anything they've done shit like that in the past so sure um so who knows um Okay, cool. Uh, this is a good time, actually. Perfect opportunity to promote your free class, Ben. That's at strategyprep.com slash free. And uh, my free class, which is foxlsat.com slash free. If you uh, look at either of those, you'll, you'll see some information on the LSAT writing sample. But more importantly, uh, you'll see stuff about all different sections of the test, uh, which are far more important than the writing sample. Yeah yeah um oh i forgot about this personal statement thing um are you happy if we do this ben does this sound like a good plan
1: i'm happy to do it i uh i'm wondering if we should tackle this next one first in case um it takes a really long time since we highlighted it on the last episode
0: oh okay sure yeah let's do that okay um Okay, I got permission from my student, Zach, to read his personal statement that got him into Stanford, and um, it's really great. And so I am looking forward to doing that. But first, we will dive into the uh, crazy issue of reading the question stem first on the logical reasoning. Yeah. Boy, how do you want to break this up? Um, well, yeah, we, we got this very thoughtful email from a listener, Will, who uh, teaches LSAT in New Orleans. He's an independent LSAT teacher in New Orleans. And he um, is very puzzled why we don't read the question stem first. And he wrote what he thought was going to be this, like um, he thought he was going to convince us. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did not, but it, it, it was you know it was a it was a thoughtful email and he makes some points and so i want to talk about I, wanna, I i think he's completely wrong <laughs> but i'm happy to <clears throat> happy to happy to talk about it i don't I, know what do you want to do just yeah go ahead i think it's good to go through this cuz <clears throat>
1: um it, you know listeners can have these same questions and concerns and there's a lot of arguments out there for reading the question first so addressing them and talking about them can help you make up your mind. I think uh make our you know help our listeners
0: make up their minds about what they should do. So um I'm game to dive in. Yeah. Yeah, Kaplan teaches to read the question stem first. The LSAT trainer teaches to read read the question stem first. Um I'm not sure about 7Sage. I think it I, does. I'm not sure though. Yeah, yeah, I think Blueprint does sometimes, but in in my view it's just a bit of like dogma. You know, it's this it's this gimmicky thing that people got in their head that is like this is what you're supposed to do on the logical reasoning. I have never done it and I find logical reasoning to be extremely easy and I, it's because I'm just going to attack the argument and it's just, it's easy. All the questions are easy. If you can attack the argument, um, my case against reading the question stem first on logical reasoning is that it gets people into too much of a technical mindset and it, it, they stop actually understanding the passage they they stop understanding the argument. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not, they're just, they just don't get the big picture And I really want you to get the big picture first before you get into all the LSAT technicality stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So anyway, um, here is Will's email about reading the question stem first. Uh, It says, sorry for the length brevity is not my strong suit. Before making the case for question stem first, I'll disagree with some of the arguments first made in episode seven of thinking Else podcast. I realize your position may have evolved since then. And I realize y'all are speaking extemporaneously and thus me thoughtfully critiquing your arguments is on some level unfair. Um, yeah, but we do that all the time, Ben, uh, so, <laughs> to, <laughs> to people. So yeah, we, you could take, that's totally fine. It's not, it's not unfair. We, we realize that you're doing this, um, because you want to reason all of this out. So, that's that's totally fine. Yeah. Um, okay. So, in bold, and I guess these are quotes from episode seven when we were talking about reading the question stem first, or not reading the question stem first. Here's quotes. I think these are quotes from us. It says, I feel like the most important thing with logical reasoning questions is just understanding what the passage is saying. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'll endorse that. hmm and then another quote from us saying the question stem can actually distract you from understanding what's in the argument. Uh, I'll endorse that too.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You you on board with both of those? I'm on both. Yeah. I, heck, I'm I might have bo- said yeah. those. Yeah. I, yeah. I I would still say those today. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Will says two problems with this. A. I don't think that reading the stem first inhibits understanding the passage. It's unclear to me why reading it before as to after would do this. You sort of argued that it is distracting. I've been teaching STEM first for years. Many of my students have various degrees of ADD, and they are not struggling to comprehend passages, unless those passages are obviously inherently difficult. My guess is that you find it distracting because you're not used to doing it that way. In my experience, understanding the passage tends to be largely binary, and the distraction effect is not something that I have seen. Okay, I don't, I don't understand what that means. I am if the passage is binary. Either, like either you, you do, or you, do or, you or you don't. Yeah, maybe. Okay, but still, the pa- if you have the question stem banging around your head, yeah, I, I okay. I mean, I I don't know. I think it definitely. I think it definitely confuses people to have a question stem banging around in their head when they haven't even read the passage yet. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily impossible to read the question no, stem first oh, and,
1: and then that. understand, right? Like, I, And I think you'd agree. But what we're trying to do here is suggest an approach that will increase your likelihood of understanding and Adding the question stem or reading the question before you read the passage so that you can somehow game the question, I think, generally sends people down the wrong path. You just got to understand what that first sentence is saying. And if you don't even understand that, then you need to stop and read it again. I do this all the time in class. I will read the first sentence. I'm like trucking along and probably because it's the jovial atmosphere of class, I'm just sort of going through and I'm like, wait, what? And then I will stop everyone and they have to wait a half second while I go back and read it again just to clarify in my mind what's being said. Because if I press forward, which I have foolishly done, especially when I first started teaching because I felt like everybody was waiting and I didn't want them to be waiting for me. But if I press forward and it's not crystal clear what that person was trying to convey, then what's the the point of me even talking? Like I'm just going to be kind of grasping at straws and not really getting a hold of what's going on and able to help them. And so uh, just like I can help them in class when I fully understand that first sentence and the next one after that, uh, I can help myself totally get what's going on and get the right answer if I take the time to understand it.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, I think an example of how it might hurt you is – And I've seen students do this all the time is they read it, the question stem, and it's a strengthened question. And now when they read the argument, they're, they're like trying to help the argument as they read it versus if it was a weakened question, then now they're trying to weaken the argument as they read it. Mm -hmm. And that's just, no, you should, you should be, you have to understand what they're saying. You don't need to know whose team you're on. It doesn't help you to understand what they're saying. In fact, it can hurt you to know what, whose team you're on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I hate it when people are like, well, it's a strength question. So these is my guys. These are my team. I'm going to help them. And it's like, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Did you realize that it's a bullshit argument? Did you mm-hmm. catch that the argument is terrible?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And if you're nodding along with it while you're reading it because you think you're supposed to be strengthening it, I mean, that hurts you from doing the critical analysis that you're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean,
1: along those lines, I think that even if you know that you need to be critical for a strengthened question and for a weakened question... When people know that it's a strengthened question or a weakened question, or a flaw question, or whatever, and they read the argument, and I say, "Hey, is it bad?" They always say yes because they know it's supposed to be bad. You and and once they know that, they're like not necessarily aware of the fact that they don't know why it's bad, which is way more important than just knowing that it's bad, right? So then I'm like, "Okay, well, why?" And they're like, eh, uh, you know, it just sucks." <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> Why yeah. does it suck? And if you read it on your own terms and then you're going through it and you don't think it's necessarily that bad and then you realize it's a strength in question, you realize that you've missed something that forces you to dig into the argument and come to that problem on your own. Um, I, I feel like it's a great way to catch myself from deceiving, or deceiving myself into thinking I know what's going on. That's all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And a couple more things, I suppose, like suppose the question you read the argument and the argument is actually good. Yeah. You want to, you want that to be like, you want that to click. You want to feel it. Mm -hmm. You want to be like, oh shit, they actually got there this time. Mm -hmm. And then if the, so uh, there was one on 82, I know for sure that it was a, it turned out to be a matching pattern question. But the key to understanding the argument was that you read the argument and you realize, oh wow, that was actually a good argument.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then when you look at the answer choices, you find a similar good argument, but because it clicked when you read it, because you read it and went like, oh shit, it's a valid argument. Wow, I can't criticize this. That's amazing. Mm-hmm then it's so easy to find the correct answer because it's similarly valid.
1: Oh, yeah. That happens all the time in parallel reasoning questions where people are debating answer choice and you're like, well, that's not a very good argument, but the original argument was good. And they say right. something like, oh, I didn't realize that that was good. And I'm asking them, did it flow? Does the Do the premises prove the conclusion now that you look at it again? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. see how that happens here. Do you see how that doesn't happen here in C? Oh yeah, this yeah. is a horrible argument, and it's we're having a discussion after the fact that it, where we didn't have to have that discussion if they had taken the time to figure it out.
0: On a role, on a role question too, you know, if it's asking you for the role played in the argument mm-hmm. by one part of the argument. Mm-hmm. So now you're if you read the question stem first, you're going to go into the argument with that part in mind.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Then, as you read the argument, that part is going to jump out, I guess. Mm-hmm. But how does that help you to understand the overall argument? No. How how do you know what role that was in the argument if you're not just figuring out the argument? Yeah, this is
1: one thing that's true about any claim in a vacuum. You have no idea what role it is because its role is defined how it relates to other claims.
0: Right, right. Okay, going on. We probably have different teaching styles, but I find the above-stated viewpoint generally harmful, unrelated to STEM-first. I tend to teach my students that a strong grounding in logical reasoning is so important that it can allow you to correctly get arguments without understanding what they are saying. I.e., recognizing certain flaws based on structure. In other words, I teach students that, quote, not understanding the passage is no excuse for not getting the question right. And for my students, adopting a, quote, you must understand the passage would actually be harmful as it would cause them to give up on passages they don't understand rather than triumphantly get them correct despite not understanding the argument. What do you think about that?
1: Well, uh... (laughs) I, I generally disagree. I'm trying to give it a fair shake, and I do think that there are some cases where there might be specific ideas that are, eh, like you're like, I don't understand that. For example, in a a very sciencey passage, there may be some sort of concept that you don't understand. But if you press forward and focus on the relationship between ideas, sort of like if-then statements or something like that, then you could get the answer right and understand the flaw without necessarily understanding specific details. But I feel like that's narrow. That's, that's those specific details. I'm sort of moving over, not the passage as a whole. So,
0: yeah, I don't, you don't have to understand all the terms. I think a science passage is a perfect example. You definitely don't have to understand what the the meaning of certain scientific terms are.
1: Yeah, or even like a set of phrases, right? Like a, a, fra- a scientific phrase may be trying to describe some certain event and it's not clear what that event is or you don't have familiarity with it, but you're like, hey, uh, if that thing, whatever that thing is, happens, then this other thing will happen. So if the first thing doesn't happen, then the other thing doesn't happen. Ah, that's a flawed argument, even though I don't know what, Exactly, is going on in this sciencey thing?
0: Yeah, but I, I just, boy, I don't like this idea of not understanding.
1: I feel like this is where a lot of students uh, can find the test to be arbitrary <laughs> and subjective right. because they they get into a certain sort of rigid framework and. When they're following that rigid framework or mentality and then they get to a certain answer choice which is queued up just for them and it's wrong. And they're like, wait, what? Why is that wrong? I've been studying this for months and this is following the general pattern. And you're you're sort of like, well, yeah, but given the substance or given what was actually said, do you see how that (laughs) doesn't apply here? And they got – trapped by form formality, uh even though the underlying message and the underlying meaning obviously much better supports a different answer choice.
0: Yeah, I mean I frequently tell my students that if you don't understand something, that's basically the answer, you know, on logical reasoning. Okay. Like like when I read a <clears throat> when I read an argument on LR and I go, wait, what? Mm-hmm. That's, that's where the answer lives.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's because I am the master of the argument that that's my job. Mm-hmm. I'm a lawyer. I'm supposed to understand everything. Mm-hmm. And so when I read an argument and I realize that, Hey, Whoa, this, that's not really connecting, you know, that's not really adding up. Mm-hmm. It, that, that is not called me not understanding the argument. That's called me understanding how the argument is broken. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm expecting, I want the argument to make sense. I have to make it make sense. I have to fill in the blanks. I have to figure out, I have to make the connections. So, sure, the arguments don't have to make sense. But I have to understand them, and I have to be able to say, here's why they don't make sense because that's the answer. Yeah. So I just don't get this plan of like, Oh, it's okay not to understand the argument. I don't know. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> it's possible that will is saying the same thing we're saying in a different way. Hmm. But I just, I, to me, it feels pretty dangerous to be saying to a student like, Oh, it's okay. You don't have to understand the argument. You can still get it right. It just, that seems like a technical gimmicky way of doing the test which I can't endorse. Yeah. Okay. Here's another quote from us. Um, if you read that it's an assumption question, you'll try to find the assumption without understanding the argument. I I would say, yeah, I, th- I think I've seen students do that. They're like looking for the assumption. Yeah. Which is not stated. <laughs> so they're not gonna find it unless they understand everything else in the argument. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that statement. Okay. Um here Will says, as you point out, Ben's argument assumes that people will follow the dumbass strategy of ignoring the argument in search of assumptions. That is an unfounded assumption. None of my students do that. The methodology I teach for both assumption questions involves understanding the argument. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Well, good. Yeah. So we have to understand the argument. Um, but then what's the advantage to having read the question stem first? I mean, in that case, there's no advantage to, have, to knowing that it's an assumption question, right? You're still going into the argument trying to figure out the argument. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another quote from us, from Ben. It says, you always need to know what the conclusion is and you need to know what the premises are. Will says, this is so patently untrue. Do you need to know the conclusion of an inference? Do you need to know the premises premises, for spot the conclusion? Uh, um.
1: <laughs> I feel like I move fast in the test precisely because I know what's going on. I'm, I'm reading the sentences, and as I'm reading them, I'm predicting where it's going. I'm saying to myself, hmm, that sounds like the main conclusion. It might not be. I might not know until I'm done... Reading the argument, but that sounds like the main conclusion. Let's see what's next. Oh, yes, this feels like evidence that's being offered in support of that. I'm fully aware of all of that. That is part of understanding. Understanding involves two levels one, understanding the content of what is being said, what are the ideas that the person is trying to convey, and two, how those ideas relate to the other ideas that are also being presented. Um, I feel like it's a fundamental skill that goes way beyond the LSAT but most people are narrowly focused on one or the other, the big picture, how things all relate together, or what individual sentences say. But the reality is you have to become good at both. And that just naturally leads you to know what the conclusion is and what the premises are, if they're there. If they're not there, then I get to the end and I'm thinking to myself, hmm, doesn't seem to be a conclusion here. And then the question says, which one must be true? And I know I'm understanding the passage because the question type is now confirming that my initial assessment of the argument was accurate.
0: Yeah. And question types aren't so rigid as Will seems to think they are. You know, he, he's saying, do you need to know the conclusion of an inference question? Or I assume he's referring to a must be true question. Um, well, what about the, what about must be true questions where the correct answer is implied? Is a necessary assumption. Well, right. It can be a must-be-true question or an inference question where the correct answer is the conclusion of that argument, right? An unstated conclusion of the argument. Mm-hmm. Or, an or as you say, Ben, a necessary assumption of that argument. Yeah. And that's a must-be-true question. But, yeah, so, yeah, there you do need to know the premises and the conclusion. Uh, Will says, do you need to know the premises to spot it on a conclusion question? Um. The, the wrong answers are usually premises.
1: So your awareness of the fact that those are premises is a huge help in eliminating wrong answers. Right?
0: Yeah, you just – right. And also, how do you spot the conclusion without understanding the argument?
1: You can't say, oh, this is the conclusion in the argument and this other stuff. I don't know what that is.
0: <laughs> well, you know, you can like 70% of the time because of keywords and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. So I guess if you're trying to get a student to one, 70,
1: though, I would say it's more like yeah, 60, 50. 50, because what a lot of times those keywords are used to introduce intermediate
0: conclusions. Yeah, things like I, that. I can imagine a shitty Kaplan class where they're focused on trying to get people from one thirty five to one forty five so that they can get brutally ripped off by law schools in that class. I can imagine them being like, well, if it asks you for the main conclusion, you just look for therefore. Mm hmm and and you just look for keywords and that's the answer. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, that'll get you to 145. That might get <laughs> you to 150. I'm serious. Yeah. I'm not I'm not joking. Yeah. I like be, but but that is not my job. My job is not to get people to 150. Like I do not want to get people to 150. I really don't. Like if if 150 is your ultimate goal, please do not take my class.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean that. <laughs> I'm I'm perfectly happy saying do not take my class if you're trying to get from 135 to 150. Mm-hmm. I am not the guy for you, yeah. and I'm not being elitist. I just don't want to see you get ripped off, and I'm worried about giving people the rope uh, to hang themselves with. And so that's why I this that that gimmick of like, oh, well, you don't need to actually understand this. You can just get this one right by just spotting the you know, oh, it's a conclusion question. You just look for though, therefore, or 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 thus, or so, and that's that's the answer most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, but you're not getting to 165 with that. No, and I, I want to get you to 165. You know, I, I want to get you to a great law school. I want to get you there with a scholarship. I just I don't want to feed the law school ripoff machine by getting you from a terrible score to a mediocre score. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think you need to know the premises in order to spot the conclusion of an argument. Uh, There are, there are main conclusion questions where the correct answer is implied,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: right? Yeah. There there are, there are absolutely main conclusion questions where the answer is not there on, in the argument. The answer is a, is something that is necessarily concluded from the premises.
1: While we're talking about it, let me give our listeners the most common example of that conclusionless conclusion question. (laughs) Yep. Uh, It usually starts out with an opinion of someone else. So it might say that many critics think that the new open source software is wonderful. But that open source software uh, is vulnerable to attack, yada, yada, yada. The point is, is that the argument starts out with the opinion of someone else, what they think. And then the argument jumps into the reasons why they're wrong but never takes the time to say that they're wrong. And so then the implied conclusion is that they're wrong and the premises are the reasons given that they're wrong. Yep. Anyways. Yep. I don't know. Side tangent but just – most questions – uh especially conclusion questions the main conclusion is explicitly stated in the passage and you can find it and it's a particular clause and then you're just looking for the right answer or the answer that best restates that clause but uh if the conclusion
0: isn't explicitly stated that's usually the format uh anyways <clears throat> okay so will will goes on now he now he's going to make his case for reading the stem first okay sorry will but i don't think we really Uh, Oh, wait, sorry, wait, we have, we have more here from this last point. Uh, He says on a hypothetical test that only included strength and weaken flaw and assumption. I think there would be a lot of merit to your argument since every question would basically involve find the conclusion, find the flaw, do X. Unfortunately, huge portions of LR involve questions where this is not what happens. Yeah. So what I, I don't care. I mean, the easiest way to find the – like so what Will saying is, well, you don't need to do this on a main conclusion question. But the easiest way to know the conclusion of the argument is to read the whole argument and go, well, here's what they want.
1: Uh, can I take a moment to give um, some numbers here? Yes. You know me. I love these numbers things.
0: Yeah, you're one of those data-driven guys. Yeah.
1: So <clears throat> to give you a big picture here first – uh 60% and this is based on tests 19 to the most recent one <clears throat> 60% of the problems or of the challenges in logical reasoning could be classified as flaw, strengthen, necessary assumption, weaken, paradox, sufficient assumption or evaluate um with the exception of paradox which you still have to figure out what's wrong uh those are all questions that involve a premise and a conclusion And you need to figure out what's wrong with the argument. So that's 60% right there. That's not to mention parallel flaw, which is another 4%. Um, And so I think this is a huge percentage of the questions. Now you have another 12% that are conclusion, role, or reasoning, which means you do need to know where the conclusion is in the premise for sure. So now we're up to um, 76%. That's three-fourths of the test at least yeah i mean numbers 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 whatever but he's saying that huge portions of lr involve questions where this is this does not happen the vast majority of the test is requiring you to figure out what the argument is and why it sucks i think that's the main focus of lr
0: three quarters of the test yeah um, okay, so now here come the advantages of STEM first, according to Will. And again, by the way, it sounds like we're being super tough on Will, but I, you know, reasonable minds can disagree. I'm doing this in the pursuit of science. I'm not trying to be dogmatic about any of this. I, you know, I appreciate Will writing in, and he's obviously a smart, thoughtful guy. And so I'm, I'm doing this out of love. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm definitely not trying to slam Will at all. I, I disagree with his points, but I'm not trying to slam him. Um, and, and Ben, I'm sure you feel the same way.
1: Yeah. I'm coming around to that. <laughs> <I'm just> no,
0: <kidding. laughs> nah, this is good. Okay. all right. Number one, if you tell students that you have a dogmatic belief in STEM last and that anyone who thinks otherwise is wrong, some of them will adopt it and never tell you that it works better for fear of angering you.
1: What the hell? Unlike- there are people
0: out there doing that? unlike you guys I have lots of students who did STEM last before coming to me and have seen the difference and honestly I can't recall a single student who prefers STEM last (laughs) um okay well that's Will's experience I mean my experience is the exact opposite of that and I've been doing this for a long time Mm -hmm. you know how many students Ben, have you have come to you reading the STEM first and you have corrected them and they have immediately started doing better on logical reasoning?
1: Oh, it happens all the time. The hardest part is convincing them that what they've heard or read elsewhere is wrong. Getting them to come on board with that takes uh, sometimes a couple weeks of class, you know? And they're like, okay, I've heard you say it enough. I'm actually going to try it. I know that it takes this time because they go home and they say, yeah, 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 and then they don't actually do it. And then when they come back and talk to me, they say, hey, by the way, I started implementing (laughs) – reading the passage first uh, on my last test. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, So it took a couple weeks. Uh, And right away my score went up. It's like, oh, cool.
0: so Yeah. Yeah, for me, I mean, a lot of times it's easy to, make, to, let, to get people to switch to what I think is the correct way because they learned it from Kaplan, you know, and they started Kaplan with a 160, they finished Kaplan with a 158, and then I'm like, well, let me, talk to you, let me ask you about logical reasoning. Are you reading the question stem first? And they're like, well, yeah, because that's what Kaplan told me to do. And I'm like, did you do that on your diagnostic? Well, no, because why would I do that? Mm-hmm. And I go, okay, well, don't do that anymore. And then they immediately return to their previous high level of performance on logical reasoning.
1: Yeah. Oh, certainly some people come on board. I just find it funny that when people yeah. are confessing their success, right.
0: <laughs> so yeah. they're like, oh, why well, didn't you do that earlier? I think we've been talking about that I, since the beginning. But Another thing that I'm sure gets people to come on board is when you start doing a logical reasoning question in class. And you read the first sentence of the argument and you already know the answer,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: right? When you're just like, well, based on what they just said from here, I, I can tell that they've already done this. This is going to be the answer. Mm-hmm. And there are people, the kids are like, what, huh? Yeah. How did you do that? And it's like, well, because I'm tuned into the argument, I can tell that they're going to bullshit me from here or they've already made a flaw here. You know, I don't need to know what question type this is this is a common bullshit pattern of reasoning. Mm -hmm. I can tell, I can see it coming a mile away. And the question stem does not help me do that. Yeah. Um, That's that, that can get converts, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'm not doing that because I know the answer to the question. I mean, I'm doing that. I did that just very recently. Prep test 82 came out. And I was doing questions in class for the first time. Mm -hmm. had never seen the questions before. Mm -hmm. And I read the first sentence of the argument and I know the answer. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's because it's not that hard. And they, they keep doing these same stupid patterns of reasoning over and over. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The question stem does not help you to answer the question in that case. Anyway, two, I think in general on life as on the LSAT, knowing your task slash methodology before you begin a project is superior to not knowing. Right. And I agree with that will. And that's why the methodology is always attack the argument. Mm -hmm. That's your methodology. That's your task is to, when you're looking at this little paragraph, your job is what the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. What do they want? What do they have? What's their evidence? What's their conclusion? What do they want? And it's attack, critically attack. That's your task. That's your methodology. You don't need 10 different tasks and methodologies to do that. I would prefer one. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to have one. So see, Will then goes on to say, I think it's fundamentally odd to start from the premise that you should dive into just working on something without knowing what the task is. But that is not at all what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Um okay so that at that point I think is a bad point in fact I think that's a point in our favor rather than in in the favor of stem first um cuz it's so much simpler it's just a simpler way to do the test yeah instead of having 10 different ways of reading these arguments you have one way to read the argument mm-hmm. critically attack and understand it that's your job then you can move on to the the strategy of different question types mm-hmm. Okay, number three, you and Ben address the idea that it, quote, might be beneficial in some edge cases to know what you're doing beforehand. I think you dramatically minimize the incremental amount of energy wasted flaw spotting on inference questions, spot the conclusion questions, roll, uh, resolve the paradox or explanation questions, parallel questions. He, Will's 100% wrong here. Will, Will says flaw spotting is not necessary on parallel reasoning questions. <laughs> That's absolutely 100% wrong. I mean, if there's a flaw, that's exactly the answer. And if there's not a flaw, you need to know that there's not a flaw. Because the wrong answers might be flawed. Yeah. Anyway. Ben seems to act like flaw spotting is just always what we do, but there are so many questions that don't require it, or worse, it's actually impossible to do on. What do you say to that?
1: Well, if it's a good argument, then trying to spot the flaw and failing will confirm to you that you
0: find it good. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, when you realize that there's no flaw, that's good. That's, you've, 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 you tried to attack the argument, but you, you couldn't? Yeah. That means it's a good argument.
1: It means you understand it. Every time we're talking about these questions in class, it's about understanding what was said. I don't do anything else. I can't think of anything else. It's do you understand what this person is trying to say and do you see how that relates to the question and the answer? I don't know. I just – I feel like (laughs) flaw spotting is reflective of how well you understand what that person tried to say and why what they said is good
0: or bad. (sighs) Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, Four. Partially, it's teaching styles. I teach my students to put 100% effort into flaw spotting when appropriate, so having them search for flaws where they don't exist would be disastrous. What? Why? And how do you know they don't exist?
1: But it even not if they don't, we don't care they're... if they don't exist. You, you look <laughs> yeah. and you're like,
0: oh, this is a good argument. Yeah, it's not disastrous. It's like exactly how you answer the question in a lot of cases, especially on parallel reasoning questions. Yeah. Uh, boy, if I, st- if I taught STEM after, I would have to say something like, read the argument, don't worry if there's a flaw. Read the question STEM. If it's a STEM that cares about flaws, now go back and search for the flaw which seems very awkward compared to what I actually teach, which is read the question stem, do whatever method you learned for that question stem. Well, I don't know why Will thinks he would have to say, don't worry if there's a flaw. (laughs) I mean, if there's a flaw, that's the answer. No, this is actually what I, this
1: is precisely what I love most about reading the passage first. If someone reads, and I've said it already today, but I'll just say it again. They read the passage, they think it's legit, They read the question and it's like, where's the flaw? And now they know that they don't understand the argument. And that knowledge I think is the key to them figuring out what's going on here. Uh, If they know from the get-go that it's going to be flawed, then even if they don't recognize that the argument is flawed because for whatever reason, they still end up thinking that they do recognize that flaw. That is like so universal. Is that your experience? Yeah, of course. All the time. Is this argument bad? Yes, it is. Why is it bad? Because it sucks. That is not a reason. I don't know. I just can't say no. it enough. That's just yeah. a perpetual thing. It happens to everyone, even some of yeah. the best test takers.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's every single question. You read the passage, and then I ask the student, what do you think about that passage? What do
1: you think about it? Yep. What's it say, and yeah, what and do you think?
0: I want them to tell me good or bad, mm-hmm. and Why? Yeah. And if it's valid, I want it. I want like, I want to see it. I want the, I want to see it in their eyes, you know, like I want to see them go, huh. You know, they actually proved their conclusion. That's awesome. But in the vast majority of cases, they go, well, it sucks because there's this big missing piece or it sucks because there's this flaw. Yeah.
1: Or Or, I, I love it too. As students get better, they start saying things like that was a good argument This is why. That was a really bad argument. This is why. This is an okay argument. I think it's reasonable, but the argument is assuming that these two things are the same and they might not necessarily be the same. And you're you're like, yes,
0: you understand what this test is trying to get at. Well... And that's where one seventies come from, right? I mean that's mm-hmm. where one seventy plus comes from is mm-hmm. that you're you're the master of the argument to the degree that you're just saying the answer to the question no matter what type of question it is. Like that's when mm-hmm. that's when students are actually able to start predicting the question type
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: from the argument. Because they read they read that question, they read the the passage and then they're just like already filling in the blanks in the exact way that the question is gonna ask them to fill it in. Mm-hmm. Uh number 5 in certain instances <clears throat> says will knowing the question type can literally be sorry can be literally time saving arguments for strengthen and weaken questions are much more likely to place the conclusion in the last sentence and a number of my students not a majority but insignificant uh, sorry but not insignificant find starting from the conclusion to be easier and quicker so if they know it's a strengthen question they can quickly find the conclusion at the end and Ugh. go from there, Will. <laughs> I know. No, I. Don't, I. I'm sorry to laugh, but yeah, I don't. That to me is just bunkers. You wouldn't
1: believe how many times the LSAT says "therefore" yada yada at the end, and that's their intermediate conclusion. I don't know what this is. This is crazy, Will. Come on. Yeah,
0: I. I. I don't endorse that point at all. Um. Number six, some questions I encourage my students to skip slash save for the end for timing concerns, notable parallel reasoning questions, which even if easy are time consuming. Having them read an argument that they are going to end up skipping is a waste of time and effort. What do you think about that?
1: They're not time consuming if you don't read the entire answer choices, right? and you don't have to when you understand the argument.
0: And sometimes parallel reasoning questions are the easiest questions on the section, Especially when they appear in the first ten or the first fifteen, yeah, for sure. Also, uh, like I said before, I'm not trying to help people get to 150. You know, and and if if like if skipping parallel reasoning questions is going to help you get to 150, I that's not my job. Um, that's go please. You know, find some help elsewhere. But actually, just please don't go to law school. Um, you need to do essentially you need to do all the questions in order. In order to get a 165, I mean, you need to do the first 20 in order to get a 165. And I, so I don't teach any skipping strategies on logical reasoning at all. I feel like skipping wastes time.
1: I don't, I don't care if people skip the parallel reasoning question on the last page. They're just, they see it right away. And they, if they don't like it for some reason, they decide to do another one because they're there. They can do it. The questions in any order they want.
0: If five minutes has already been called. And if you're already on question 21 or whatever, yeah, skipping one at the end, but like you would never tell somebody to skip number 10 because it's parallel. Oh no,
1: for sure. And I'm not even advocating that. I'm just saying, if you find yourself, you really don't like these, I think you should work on them because they're not as bad as you think. But (laughs) on that last page, You want to do uh, the questions in a different order? It doesn't matter. Just make sure you don't mess up your bubbling.
0: Anyways. Um, I hope you find some of this insightful. I've been getting a lot of insight from your podcast, so I just wanted to help, if possible, Will Novak. And that's uh, Will in... um, New Orleans, and he teaches LSAT in New Orleans, and you can check him out. Um, thanks, Will, very much for writing in. I disagree with all of your points, but I, you know, <laughs> I appreciate. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, telling it the way I see it. Um, I am not dogmatic about this. I have thought about this continuously for ten years. You know, I, I never stop thinking about this question stem first thing. Because it comes up all the time right like we know that there's so many people out there teaching this and we have students all the time that we rescue from this strategy mm-hmm. and so I, I don't I don't I really don't think I'm dogmatic. I think I'm open to considering other points. I just don't think any of these points really do and I don't think they I don't just don't think they're valid. Uh, I have to agree we need to get some other people on
1: here who. Um, think otherwise and just have them make their argument. It's easier. It's when it's in person, you know, to make the strongest case for your position.
0: Yeah. Let me, let me read. We got an email here from, um, Jay. Okay. I got this email this morning and it's, it's perfect timing. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to read this. Uh, I'm just going to read this email from, from Jay. Mm -hmm. It says, Episode 117's ending teaser pinged me. Since I emailed you about my success on the LSAT eight months ago, I took a second job as a tutor with an LSAT prep company. After my first few cycles of one-on-one students, I've developed an even stronger opinion on question stem first versus stimulus first. Here's why question stem first is, in my opinion, objectively a worse strategy. Bullet point. Too formulaic is a thing. My question stem firsts seem so intent on applying methodologies and tricks, shudder, to every question, that they just missed far too many important pieces of information in the stimulus. The stimulus almost becomes worthless to them, and they read none of it except exactly what their predetermined methodologies tell them to look for. This creates a number of blind spots, which I believe are the direct result of test writers responding to question stem first teaching methodologies. I don't know about that. That's speculative, but it's it's an interesting point. Mm -hmm. I I do agree that the two formulaic thing, that's 100%. I I think people are like, well, no, because this is a whatever type of question. I'm supposed to be doing this strategy. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't understand the stimulus, dummy. You're not going to be able to answer the question if you didn't understand the stimulus. Um, Okay, bullet point. Because of the above, progress becomes stunted at a lower level for students, and these plateaus become harder to burst through as achieving a higher score often involves unlearning bad material. It's like a pitcher after Tommy John surgery trying to learn how to throw like Jamie Moyer. I had a previous Kaplan failure in the December cycle who had to unlearn a bunch of stuff, and it pained me that it was literally costing him money to unlearn something for which he'd already paid. Um I agree uh, that's I think we've been speculating on that for a long time including today right Ben that that maybe this strategy is good for like lower level students yeah but then I think you can totally just get stuck mhm yeah it's an interesting um comment there <laughs> the analogy <laughs> yeah Well, I think that analogy is like, you know, you're, you're protecting yourself. Like it's this gimmicky kind of protective way of doing, doing it instead. Mm -hmm. But you're just never going to be, you're never going to, you're just never going to be a star. I mean, I just don't think you're getting to 170 or whatever. I mean, I, and now there's going to be people writing in going like, well, I read the questions to him first and I get to 170, but you are going to get to 170 anyway. You know, (laughs) I don't That's it's not that's that's not not what we're saying. Um, Okay, evaluating stimuli before the question stem has aided my students in actually understanding certain argument forms, common flaws, the important sufficient versus necessary differentiation. And it helps certainly in making predictive answer choices. During sessions, I will often have a student read a stimulus and then I'll have them make a prediction for three or four sample questions that could come from the same stimulus. This allows them to exercise LSAT muscles without burning through fresh material. Hmm. That's an interesting drill. I mean, you certainly could ask three or four different questions from any given stimulus. Yeah, for sure. So that, that isn't, that is an interesting one. And this is a good point. I think Jordan makes, you know, that you can, you can predict the answers just from reading the stimulus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. I could go on, not like you need my advice, but I just wanted to let you know that I'm all in with stimulus first. And without exception, my highest scoring students are using stimulus first. I've got no dog in this fight. Question stem first. Student money spends the same as any other. However, I want good word-of-mouth advertising from my students. My wife's handbag habit depends on that, and I'm teaching stimulus first. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's Jay. Um, thanks, Jay, for writing in. I think Jay makes a, a bunch of, of good points. That's I think it echoes a lot of what we have been saying. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, do you think we covered that uh, topic? Yeah, I think we did. Okay. Um. Let's see How you doing for time? I can do one more One more? Mm-hmm. How about we shift gears entirely and I'll read this personal statement Sure Okay, cool Let me just pull this up here I could have had this already loaded up But that would have required preparation on my part We would never expect that of you, Nathan well, we have committed to our students that we will, uh, never do any prep. That was, that's a, that's our promise to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So being true to our word. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> okay. Here we go. So this is from my student Zach and I've, I've read a lot of personal statements over the years and this is one that stuck with me as being, um, awesome. I I think it has, I think it has what we're looking for. Uh, please, you know, don't plagiarize this. And uh, yours does not have to be exactly like this. But this personal statement does a lot of things nicely. And I think it's uh, just, yeah, just a good example of of, um, of what a personal statement can do. And this uh, student is now uh, at Stanford Law. So, uh, you know, it worked. <clears throat> um, here we go. On the same day I graduated from Rice University, I competed in the biggest race of my life, the preliminary round for the 800 meters of the Conference USA Championships. Seated with the seventh fastest time, I had a strong chance of making the finals. The top eight times from the preliminary round would advance. I bombed. I came in 15th place and ran the slowest race of my last season wearing the Rice R. My career as a Division I walk-on student-athlete was over one race too soon. I walked off the track with tears in my eyes and wondered whether I could view my athletic career as a success. This question was immediately answered when I arrived at our team area. There, I was embraced by my boys, my teammates who called me Dad and Papa Zack. My career was not to be measured by my times. I was to be defined by the impact I had on my boys. From my example, they learned the importance of sacrifice and the need to better not only themselves, but also their fellow teammates. You want to comment paragraph by paragraph, Ben, or should I just read the whole thing? No, no. This is like a fireside chat. I think we need to step back and just listen. Great. Second paragraph. Dad and Papa Zach were jabs at my more mature physical appearance and old soul character, but I embraced them. As an upperclassman, I made it my responsibility to rid the negative aspects of our team's culture, to serve as a leader by example, and to be a mentor to the freshmen. In my first two years, there was no semblance of team unity. Many were more interested in playing beer pong than showing up to practice on time. At the first meeting of my junior year, I outlined the responsibilities we had to ourselves and to one another. First, as students, we had to possess a deep concern for the intellectual and academic challenges Rice presented. As athletes, we had to ensure that our studies did not interfere with our ability to train and compete. Our two focuses had to be schoolwork and training. Involvement in clubs, our residential colleges, and the social activities of Rice were to be distant tertiary concerns and could not interfere with our two primary obligations. During my collegiate athletic career, I did not score as an individual, nor did I place as a finalist in a Conference USA Championship meet. I never once won a race. Based on my high school career, I should never have made the team in the first place. For two years, I doubted that I belonged at the Division I level. Yet, when four freshman teammates first called me dad, I relieved myself of the pressure to always race well. I began to define success in how my positive attitude and dedication to my teammates elevated their performance and well-being. Whether it was picking them up from a party at two in the morning, or offering encouragement after a disappointing workout, I strove to serve my teammates. My commitment to them brought our team together. I hope the foundation of team support that I helped build will remain into the distant future. I did not pursue the opportunity to try out for the Rice Track and Field team because I wanted to have the label of Division I Athlete attached to my name, I did want to compete against the best runners and see if I could reach my full potential, but I placed no value in the title. Being an athlete meant that I had the chance to impact the lives of my teammates and push them to become better runners and people. When Dad and Papa Zach began to catch on with the team and with those at my residential college, I knew my goal had been realized. My greatest contribution to Rice University was my ability to bring light to someone's day. At 6 in the morning for the start of a 12-mile run, I am the one to exclaim, Good morning, Rice, you! I am also the one to wear a Canadian flag, replete with a hockey shirt and maple leaf socks, to honor a lost wager during the 2014 Winter Olympics. Even if I embarrassed myself, my goal was and is to bring a smile to a teammate's or even a stranger's face. That objective will remain unchanged as I embark on a career in law. Last paragraph. My measurement of success is not based in terms of grades achieved, races won, or honors garnered. By those measures, my Rice track experience was an unequivocal failure. Attainment, for me, is determined by who I help or hurt. I hope to have a long career as a public servant, and the bar will be the same. I value a community where there is a common pursuit to grow and transform together. I anticipate law school will reward me with such a community and will push me to act in a more selfless manner. Law school will further challenge my intellectual abilities and my critical thinking skills. Through pro bono work as a law student, I hope to serve the less fortunate. In turn, I will be inspired to remain on the path of service. Most importantly, I hope to find a new group of teammates that will help me grow into a person of greater integrity and love. I hope Papa Zach carries on into my next endeavor, just as it lives on with my boys who still wear the R. That's it. Yeah, that's a
1: that's a very good statement. Um, I what, have do like to, uh, what do you I like about the, it? What do you hate about it? I like the fact that it was well-written. I like the fact that it uh, has a good message. Uh, I like the fact that it's all about Zach, and so we get to know Zach through that. I will say, though, that there were several sentences, and maybe we should have stopped because now I don't remember them. But there were several sentences where I did feel like I just had to take Zach's word on it. And it made me a little mm, have sort of a meh feeling. So I don't mean to be critical of Zach. Obviously, he did very well. And it's a great personal statement, especially compared to the vast majority that we we encounter out there for the reasons I said. But I I would say there are a few sentences I would still prefer that Zach
0: do less telling and more showy. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah, so but I think the one thing that makes it work though is um so I like that it's self-deprecating. It it because it keeps saying basically that he was the worst guy on his track team.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: It 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 makes you want to believe him when he says other things. Right. At least that's how I. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's because it's like, well, if he was going to be lying, then why wouldn't he say he's good at running? (laughs) He's basically saying, you know, he walked on, he sucked, he lost, he's a failure as a runner. So I like that aspect of it. And I Mm -hmm. I feel like that does give him a little more credibility when he says things like, you know, yeah, I think I understand what you're saying, that there's some, there are some sentences in here where it's conclusory Mm -hmm. and, and that he could have provided more evidence. But the one, this, the reason why I always come back to this personal statement is mm. just the two words, Papa Zach.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because one, it's a factual detail that, I mean, we're taking his word that that people actually did call him this. Oh, no, that's exactly the kind of thing
1: that I really like. You right. say Papa, you say Papa Zach and okay, factual matter, no dispute there. Someone, people called him that. The implication, though, is, oh, wow, people respected him. People saw him as friendly but also as a leader. That's the sort of thing that occasionally he slipped into sort of saying, like, I I took the lead here. I did this. And that's where you're like, okay, um, I'm glad you feel like you did that. But (laughs) ironically, not saying that with two words – I feel did a much better job of conveying that and so much more. It's like a
0: picture versus words, right? A picture conveys so many meanings. Right. But, but it's exactly the picture because he has Papa Zach and because he keeps saying it, Mm it, it, that's the brand, that's his brand. You know, if you think mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. when whoever read his application and they took him into the committee meeting and they were trying to sell Zach's candidacy at Stanford, right. In the, they're like, what they, about the Papa Zach dude? <laughs> well, yeah, no, but that's exactly it. It's yeah. like, who, cause yeah. the rest of the committee, it's like, who is this guy? You know, the rest mm-hmm. of the committee might not have read the personal statement. The rest of the committee doesn't, you know, have Zach's file in front of, or, you know, they, I don't know. There's one person there who's like really the champion for Zach. Mm -hmm. And I can just see this person at the meeting being like, Hey, we have to have Papa Zach on our team. Are you fucking kidding me? Of course we want Papa Zach. And -hmm. it's like, is that going to be our best academic, whatever, you know, is Papa Mm -hmm. Zach going to be on the Supreme court? Mm -hmm. Maybe not, but that's not the point. The point is Papa Zach is going to make the entire community better. Yeah. And because I just love that branding. I love Mm -hmm. that. Like who, who, what's the, what is the, what is your brand? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this personal statement immediately brands him Papa Zach. Boom. And it's just, it's an easy, it's like easy to understand. Mm -hmm. And it just, I don't know for that, for that reason only, I feel like this personal statement is exceptional. Cool. Um, I think I agree with you that, you know, when I read through it again, just now, I, I think there are places where he is telling and he could have thrown in a couple more details, about, Mm -hmm. you know, incidents that happened or whatever, instead of just saying, you know, this is what I'm want to do. And I want to make my team more selfless and better people and whatever that's sort of telling. Right. So he could, he he definitely could have put in a couple more details. Mm -hmm. Uh, that said, um, it does not attempt to rehash his entire (laughs) academic or professional career. Yep. Mm -hmm. It does include Facts and details that are interesting. It tells a story. I love that it jumps right in with him bombing in this race. Mm -hmm. That's amazing, right? That's like, Hey, we're starting deep into the story. We've got a dramatic moment. I love that it's self deprecating, but also putting your best foot forward at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that it's got the Papa Zach brand in it.
1: Yeah. Those are good things. Okay.
0: Um, all right. Well, we can, we can leave that there. And I really do want to say thank you to Zach for letting me share this on the show. Um, one thing that I find in common with my alumni who have gone to Stanford Law School is that they are exceptionally generous folks. Um, I'm, I'm almost amazed at how much time they have to give to uh, other people. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it it's, it, I mean, it's just exceptional. Like I'll send emails. I think I've said this on the show before, but I, I'll send emails to people like I'll send emails to five people at Stanford law and five people at Berkeley law mm. and the Stanford law people who are doing much more interesting things and are far flung all around the world. Like always respond quicker to my email. Mm. Okay. It's, <laughs> so yeah. it's like, it's like there's just, there's higher capacity and potentially higher interest in, you know, helping others I, the I have, I find my Stanford alumni to just be exceptional. So hmm. I, I will say I've come around to this conclusion over, you know, I didn't know that there was a difference really in 10 years of teaching LSAT, but lately I'm just blown away by my um, Stanford alum. So if you have a chance to go to Stanford law school, <laughs> yeah. uh, I do think there's a difference. Hmm. Cool. Like it's not a toss up between Stanford and Berkeley. Yeah. Those are—they're not the same thing, you know. I don't—I don't—I just don't even put those in the same category at all. Hmm. Um, okay. We would love—I think, Ben. Did you? Did you think that was good? I mean, do you think we would do that again?
1: Uh, read a personal statement. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Send it in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if if folks think they have an exceptional personal statement and want us to, uh, read it slash critique it on the show, I think we could do that once in a while Yeah, for folks. Um, we've done one before that we, recently that we thought really needed a, a shit ton of work. Yeah. <laughs> and I think people found that useful, or at least the emails seem to suggest that they did. Yeah. And, um, I'd love to know what you think of, uh, this personal statement and hopefully it helps give you some inspiration for how to, uh, how to write yours. I, I think the key is you got to think about what brand, what is your brand? You know, if, mm-hmm. if someone is going to sell you to the committee in one sentence mm-hmm. or two words, like Papa Zach, what, yeah. what is your brand? I think that's what needs to come out of the personal statement.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. So send us Uh, you can send us emails. Um, That's help at thinkinglsat.com. Yep. You can reach out directly to me, Nathan at foxlsat.com or go to my website, foxelsat.com. You can reach out to Ben directly. That's Ben at strategyprep.com. His website, strategyprep.com. Um, should we leave it there for today? Uh, I think we, unfortunately I
1: need to, to get going, but I'm looking at this list <laughs> it just keeps growing. We have 16 pages still.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I don't know what to say. We get a lot of thoughtful emails. I mean, I really do appreciate that long email from Will. I thought that that was, you know, it was thoughtful, even if I think it's misguided. Yeah. I think, thank you definitely to all of our listeners for, um, all of your questions and for supporting the show. I don't know what to say. We've, yeah, we've got, uh, we've got a long backlog, but we'll do our best to get, get through it. Yeah. Cool. Okay, cool. Um, Alright Ben, I will let you go And uh, listeners, we will be back to you in a week Yeah, thanks Thanks for listening